through 13. We were in these passages on last week as well. So we begin in verse 11 again this evening in our reading. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. We find in this passage, verse 8 begins the fourth division. Some weeks back we began looking in verse 8 and moving forward, and then last week, of course, we looked into verse 11. But verse 8 begins the fourth division within Jude's epistle. And as we have previously discovered, the warnings within the third division and the woes within this fourth division are all pertaining to the wicked men who pervert the grace of God as though grace is a means to excuse sin. Now, when you go back to verse, uh, the beginning verses of this epistle, we know that the scripture Jude says to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. And we understand that the faith is all-inclusive, that which was handed down by God to believers, to the church, the apostles, of course, laying that foundation for the church and that cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ. So again, the, the, the foundation is Jesus. The apostles were used by God to establish the church within the doctrine of Christ and the teaching of Christ as God had revealed uh, Christ to them, to the apostles specifically. And we know that, uh, that, that these in verse 4, which are mentioned, are those who would work against the faith or those who would pervert faith or the grace of God as Jude explains. And so contending for the faith specifically is, is in relation to these who would pervert the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the faith is all-inclusive again of the entirety of the teachings of Christ and the doctrine that's been laid out and handed down. But, but the, the specific issue taking place here, of course, is that of, of, in a sense, antinomianism, theologically as it would be referred to, as though there's lawlessness, as though, again, we're under grace, not under the law. But as Paul says, what shall we do? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, Romans 6.1. And verse 2, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer there? And how shall we that are separated from sin continue to live in sin? It's absolutely an impossibility. And so he's saying that that, that cannot be. And so these, in verse 4, these men, these wicked men, uh, perverted the grace of God as though God's grace is a means or an excuse or as a, as a, is used as a license to sin. Verses 8 through 10, Jude describes these men who pervert God's grace as filthy dreamers. Number one, we saw men who continue to manifest wicked imaginations, Genesis 6, 5. They defile the flesh. Men who live out their wicked imaginations and continually pollute their physical lives and bodies by any means they can imagine, Romans 1, 24 through 31. They despise dominion. This refers to those who pervert grace as a means or excuse to sin. And they do so... Uh, because they reject authority, Proverbs 12.15 and Proverbs 15.1. And then four, they speak evil of dignities. They, they misrepresent God. They misrepresent the Lord Jesus Christ and the holy angels by crediting their works as they are the works of God. 2 Corinthians 11.13-15, we're giving an example of that. Last week we began to examine this woe which Jude declared in verse 11. Again, we read verse 11 together. Woe unto them. For they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Kor. 
Now, the interjection woe is intended to emphasize the terror of the reality of the matter and, and the tra- tragedy of which Jude speaks. And we saw last week the way of Cain is Cain rejecting God's provision and, and he attempted to approach God in his own way. And again, the way of Cain is any way other than God's way. That's what it really, boil, really boils down to. Genesis 4, 3 through 8, Hebrews 11, 4, 1 John 3, 11 through 12, all mention and refer to this. The way of Cain is, again, any way other than God's way, which, of course, God's way ultimately we know is his provision for us in the person of Jesus Christ. Second, Jude refers woe unto them because they went in the era of Balaam. Balaam deceived God's people and caused them to sin for his own selfish gain. Numbers 31, 16, 2 Peter 2, 12 through 15, and Revelation 2, 14 are verses which we looked at. Then third, the woe is pronounced because of the rebellion of Kor, which is, demonstrates where the way of Cain and era of Balaam lead, which is utter destruction. Numbers 16, 1 through 3, Numbers 16, 31 through 35. So these these, this woe that is pronounced is due to the seriousness of the truth of those who pervert uh, the, God's grace as though it is a license or freedom to sin, and he then compares them to these. But then in verses 12 through 13, we see this woe really continues as Jude further describes these wicked men who have perverted God's grace, as mentioned in verse 4, and while Jude uses historical and biblical examples by which to explain the wickedness and deceitfulness of their character within verses 12 and 13. Jude describes the emptiness of the wicked ways of these men using five analogies or illustrations to expose both the error and the end of such wicked men. He's further emphasizing this truth. Let's look again at verses 12 through 12 and 13. These are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds. Trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. Wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now there's five examples, five analogies that are given here. First are illustrations. He first mentions spots, which as we would recognize would be blemishes. Actually there's other other truth behind this as well, but spots are blemishes. There's empty clouds. There's un- three unfruitful trees, four wild waves, and five drifting stars. And so each of these five examples or illustrations which Jude uses is still referencing or is being used in reference regarding the men who pervert God's grace, these wicked men in Uh, verse 4 of this epistle. And tonight we're going to examine, begin our examination of these five examples as to Jude's reason and meaning for their use to further describe the wicked men of which he speaks in verse 4. He says, these are spots in your feasts of charity. In verse 12, the beginning part of the verse, these are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you feeding themselves without fear. Now, you have to understand that of which Jude speaks here. We're going to get to this in just a moment, but prior to even moving into that realm of what these feasts actually consisted of, the word spots that is used here, it it means rocks. And this is an interesting statement. Spence Jones commented, the word itself, spots, 
however, properly means rocks, even though, of course, we understand it as blemishes. And therefore, the point may be, he says, that their immoral conduct, the men of verse 4, their immoral conduct makes these men, those of verse 4, like treacherous reefs on which their fellows make shipwreck. The Feast of Charity, we have to understand what this was. And we mention this every time we observe communion or the Lord's Supper, as we refer to it often. The Feast of Charity were feasts which today are commonly referred to as love feasts. They're feasts of charity, feasts of love, if you will, or love feasts. And these feasts were meals which were associated with the early church as they observed communion together. And the idea of such a feast goes back to the origination of the church. If you look at Acts chapter 2, let's look at verse 44 is where we'll begin our reading and then go through verse 47. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now, it's interesting because we're looking at these notices for a moment. Jude is saying that these men of verse 4 are these wicked men who pervert God's grace are like treacherous reefs. And there's much to be said about that upon which when, when unobserved or unnoticed become a means of shipwreck for those that would, would crash upon them. And the point is that these are, are plants, if you will. These are individuals that are, are congregating or are gathering with the body of Christ, and yet there's great danger uh, that they, they present within the body of Christ. Now, interestingly enough, when you look at, at uh Acts 2, and then you go to Acts, let's, let's turn there for just a moment. If you're already there, that's great. I'm going to actually turn there for just a moment. The example is given of the establishment of the early church here, in, in the, not the example, the actual history is given of the, of the early church here in Acts chapter 2. And then whenever you go to Acts chapter 4, we see something else. Uh, very akin to this. Notice, notice what it says in verse, uh, let's see, 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul, neither said any of them that aught of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. Now that's the same language that was used back in Acts chapter 2. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of things that were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, by who the apostles were surnamed Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now let's pause there for a moment. 
Here again, you see the early church. They are gathered together. These men who come to belief are, and women as well, filled with the Holy Ghost. Then they had all things in common. Not one of them said, oh, I own this, you own that. No, everything was brought together, and they even sold their properties and brought it together. And, and under, the, uh, under the leadership of the, the church, then, and the apostles specifically, of course, the need, uh, whatever the need was among the body of Christ, there was distribution from the, that which had been brought by the congregation as a whole, and, and the needs were met because none of them claimed ownership of anything personally. They said, this is the Lord's, and that we are part of the body of Christ. And so they had all of these things common. But what's interesting is, in the next chapter, <laughs> you find the account in chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. And look at what's said about them. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira's wife sold a possession and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this is interesting. What did Barnabas just do? He just brought, sold property, brought the money, and laid it down at the apostles' feet, right? That's what he just did. What is it that Ananias and Sapphira do? They do the same thing with one exception. They are deceitful. They are not actually bringing everything. Now, did they have to bring everything? No, they didn't have to. But what they are doing is they are presenting themselves as though they are giving all of this just as Barnabas did, whenever the truth is that is not at all what is actually taking place. And we find evidence of that as we read on. He says in verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? So see, the misrepresentation is, oh, I'm giving everything. That was the intent, or that's what they wanted everyone to believe, but they actually kept back part for themselves. Then he says, while it remained, now here's Peter, Peter is explaining to them, you could have kept it, you could have kept all of it, you could have kept a part of it, and that's perfectly fine. The problem is, you are trying to imitate the work of the Holy Spirit, claiming that this is the Spirit's work in the same way as it was with Barnabas. Notice what he says in verse 4. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart that, that thou hast lied not unto men, but unto God? So the, obviously the problem is Ananias then dies, and then Sapphira's wife comes in, and the same thing happens to her. She dies as well, instant, instantly. And fear came among the people within the body because they saw the, the seriousness of what was taking place. Now here's, I, I brought this out because of chapter 2, where you find the early church having all things in common. Then you come to chapter 4. They still have all things in common, and they are actually giving that of which they have sold and their own houses and lands or what have you, and they are bringing it for common use, for distribution among the needs of those within the body of Christ. And here's the only way that could have been done, because they thought of others more than they thought of themselves. But here Ananias and Sapphira, notice what they did. They are like treacherous reefs that without being observed or pointed out are God making it known by their own death and Peter explaining that you have lied unto the Holy Spirit, that they would have become a great, that would have been a great issue for the early church as they were lying not just to men but unto God. So when you see, when you see what, what Jude is referring to, it's not just Ananias and Sapphira, obviously, but it, it specifically are those who would pervert doctrine and pervert the truth of God's word and be deceitful concerning the teaching or how even that matter of using grace as a license to sin, which of course is, is that same thing such as 
It, for, uh, we see it in the examples we saw last week. It, it, the way of Cain, okay, going away other than God's way. Because God's way is not, oh, here's my grace so you can continue to sin. No, but we'll, we think that's okay. Then Balaam, of course, right, for his own reward, of course. He, he sold the children of Israel out, if you will. He tempted them to sin. What do you think it is when someone stands up and says, or someone practices or teaches that grace is just a means of God's provision of forgiveness for us regardless, and we can just continue to sin, it really doesn't matter. That's just as Balaam, because obviously that's going to bring the chastening hand of God, not, not the blessings of God being experienced, out, but his chastening. Then, of course, you had Korah, of course, which, which uh, as my brother pointed out the other night, usurped the authority of, of God as God had established it to be. And, of course, Korah utterly was destroyed and all those with him and everything pertaining to them. And so we find that these spots or these rocks or these hidden reefs, these blemishes that are present within these feasts of love, even Ananias and Sapphira, if you think of it, they are a blemish in comparison to the truth of the beauty of the working of the Spirit of God in Barnabas and the others. Here they are coming together saying, we own nothing ourselves. All this belongs to the Lord. It is the Lord who has blessed us, and we want to, to further the work of the gospel and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Ananias and Sapphira come along and say, yeah, we want the same recognition that Barnabas guy got out of this. And so we'll come and we'll bring some of ours too, but we're going to keep some of it back for ourselves, which they could have done. But they were presenting it as though they were just as Barnabas. That's a blemish. That's a spot. And that is a dangerous position to, to be in. Paul rebuked the church at Corinth concerning many within the church who had perverted the purpose of these love feasts, which were intended to be a gathering of the body of Christ, both rich and poor, who would then come together as one without distinction. Think about this. Somebody just sold their house, just sold their land, and here they are, right? Let's put it into today's, today's language so we can understand it. If you own a house today in this area of Nassau County, it doesn't matter really what kind of shape it's in. If you sell it, you're going to profit from that sale today. <laughs> and the reality is that, the, the, think of this for a moment. If you sold your house right now and you came to the church and somebody's struggling to make their mortgage payment and you're coming in and you're... you're, you're basking in your wealth in the sense of selling your house and everything's great for you well fine that's all well and good good for you that you were able to sell your house and make a profit on it but notice in this case what is happening is they are coming together recognizing that in the body of christ that there is no distinction between those who had wealth and those who had none and they're saying all things are common and so they are saying this is a moment, this feast and this love feast was a time for the body to gather together and to rejoice together in their identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, recognizing that the wealthy had no advantage over the poor, and the poor were not any less within the body than those who were wealthy. And they used this as a means to minister one to another. So these were intended, these love feasts were intended to be a gathering of the body of Christ, both rich and poor, when they would come together as one without distinction, having only the identity, claiming only the identity they shared in Jesus Christ. It was a reminder of the love and sacrifice of our Lord Jesus and how that we are all equally one in him. In 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen 17 through 26, and then verse 33, 
We read, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, Paul writes, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now that's an interesting statement. Let me pause there for a moment. Because Paul says there must be heresies. He said there must, there's divisions among you, but then he says, and, and I don't praise you for this, however, and I do believe this, but also I recognize the necessity for these divisions to be. Because the divisions, notice what he says, they're actually going to be separating those who are approved among you. And so he says there's going to be this, this tension that is present. He said that those who are approved might be manifest among you. Verse 20 he goes on to say, When you come together therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in eating everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? Here it is. Oh, so we're, gonna, we're just going to be drunken and fill ourselves and be gluttons in this while there's others that are suffering, literally hungry, and we give no attention to them. As though, well, we're, we're doing well, they're not, <laughs> that's on them. He says, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. As I've said to you so many times, the context of Paul's teaching here in Corinthians concerning the Lord's table is that it is the brokenness of Christ in which we have unity, and we are all made partakers equally of Christ and in Christ. He goes on to say, after the same manner, verse 25, also he took the cup, and when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Then verse 33, he said, Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Here he's saying, this isn't about you and you becoming a glutton and you getting your fill. This is about understanding the identity we have in Jesus Christ, how we've been made partakers in Christ equally, and there's, there is no hierarchy with God. And it's not, and again, physical blessings, remember this, physical blessings, as you might call blessings, are not the evidence of God's love. God's love has been demonstrated and manifested in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you've received the Lord Jesus Christ, you could be loved no more by God than you are loved. Regardless of what you have or have not. Let me remind you of something with, I've shared with you many times, and this is often, I think, misunderstood when you look at the, in our study in Genesis years ago, um, when we made it to the part of, of course, uh, when Abraham goes to Egypt. And you recall, and God spared Sarah from being, of course, um, taken by Pharaoh, and he uh, did that more than once, actually. Twice Abraham offered Sarah on the altar of self-preservation, and God preserved Sarah nonetheless. And Abraham offered Sarah to Pharaoh, remember, because it was a, uh, he'd left because of the uh, famine and such or what have you, and, and went to Egypt. And as he goes into Egypt, he gets there, and of course, he's going to offer Sarah to Pharaoh, because Pharaoh, and he says, it's my sister. You remember, he lied and said, oh, this is my sister, not my wife, because he feared that Pharaoh would kill him to take Sarah if, that were the, if, if he told the truth. 
Anyway, and when it's all said and done, if you recall, Abraham leaves Egypt and he leaves with cattle and herds and wealth. And remember, and, and now here's the irony of this. You're saying, now wait a minute, but it was not God's, or Abraham acted against the will of God in going to Egypt, and we know that's true. How do we know that's true? Well, further down the line, Hagar comes into the picture, and Hagar just happens to be taken from the land of Egypt when Abraham goes to Egypt. So all this is outside of God's will, meaning Abraham's acting, God's working his will regardless, but Abraham's not submitted to the Lord's will in acting in such a manner. And so Abraham leaves Egypt with his coffers full, you might say. And people would say, well, look there, God blessed Abraham despite his sin, despite him acting against God's will. But is that really the blessing of God? If you recall with me, just short time thereafter, there is Lot and Abraham and their herdsmen and servants. And what are they fighting over? Not Abraham and Lot, but what are the herdsmen fighting over? Because of the cattle. So this abundance of cattle that is the blessing of God from Egypt, follow this, becomes the curse of Lot and the grief of Abraham and Lot's family. You have to be careful in thinking that every time someone has an abundance of physical blessings or you come across a windfall of such, let's say, that that is absolutely the blessing of God. It may be that God is blessing, in a sense, for His purpose and glory. But at the same time, it might be that that's going to be nothing more than a source of contention concerning God's purpose and plan in your life and those around you. And so you find that in that case, of course, here in this example in Corinthians, Paul is rebuking the church, and the reason he does so is because They are not caring for one another, ministering to one another, meeting each other's needs, but rather they would one get drunken and one be filled while others did not have to to eat at all or to drink at all. And so he was saying that you ought to tarry for one another. So within Paul's epistle to the church at Corinth, he rebuked them for abusing and perverting this means of grace as provided in the Lord's table and the love feasts. In verses 21 and 22, Paul went on to say, For in eating everyone taketh before other his own supper, one is hungry, one is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and drink in, or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? So Paul then instructed the church on how they were to minister to one another. Again in verse 33. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come to eat, tarry one for another. The feast of love were to be a time of unity in which the entire body of Christ submitted to the truth that they were one in Jesus and that in Christ there were no distinctions due to one's position or one's status or one's wealth or poverty in life. Rather, all believers, regardless of their financial position and status, were one in the body of Jesus. Jude verse 12 goes on to say, these are spots in your feast of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Jude further emphasizes such behavior by those who perverted God's grace. He states that they are as reefs hidden by the waves, which when not recognized and pointed out would result in shipwreck. Simon Peter wrote the same of those who perverted God's grace as a license to sin. 2 Peter 2, 9-13 and 17-19. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government, presumptuous are they, self-willed, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. That sounds familiar to Jude, doesn't it? Whereas angels, are, which are greater, 
in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that count it pleasure to ride in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Verses 17 to 19, these are wells without water, clouds they are carried with a tempest to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escape from them who live in error. While they promise them liberty, notice the words here, this is so, so important to what Jude is teaching. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, of the same is he brought in bondage. Let me give you an example of what's being stated here. If we are overcome of Christ, then we are in bondage to Christ, which means we live in the righteousness and holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in perfection, but we are, our lives are demonstrating his righteousness because we are overcome, overwhelmed by his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ who dwells within. But here are these who promise liberty, promise freedom, yet they are the servants of corruption. For in their promise and practice of such freedom to sin, they are actually being controlled by sin and in bondage to sin. And he goes on to say, he goes on to say that they, of course, are brought into this this bondage. These were men who took advantage of the church and God's provision of grace, specifically regarding Lord's table. Those spoken of in 1 Corinthians. They did not discern the Lord's body and therefore were propagating division and contention where there were otherwise would have been love, ministry, and care within the body of Christ. And they were deceiving those who had been set free and the deception was that the grace provided them this freedom to sin, this liberty, yet they themselves were in the bondage of corruption the entire time, as Peter states in his epistle. So these spots that Jude refers to here in verse 12, they are blemishes within the purity of the love of Christ within his body or church. They were as hidden reefs, which again lurked under the cover of water, just waiting to destroy and shipwreck all that would come their way. Because think about this for a moment. If you were to fall into the deception of what they were claiming, that is destructive, that is corrupt, and it is a corrupt end in terms of shipwreck, that is. Once again, we are reminded again of the importance of knowing, engaging, living, and contending for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. For there are always those who infiltrate the church. There are always tares among the wheat. There are always those who serve the purpose of deception and destruction. They are always going to be present. Listen, if they were in the early church, the first century church, then don't, don't think for one moment they don't exist today within the church. Don't think for one moment that they are not present. Don't think for one moment. And don't think they're going to jump up and shout, here I am. So therefore, going back to Jude's thesis statement, earnestly contend for the faith. What is the importance of this? Here's the reality of it. Apart from the faith, apart from the entirety of the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles, 
the teachings of Paul to the church, apart from the faith which has been handed down to the saints, we will easily or could easily be deceived by every wind of doctrine. And the only reason we are not deceived by every wind of doctrine is if and when we are rooted and grounded in the truth. And what is that truth? The faith. So in earnestly contending for the faith, it is more than just fighting. But it is fighting included as well. It's a, it's a strong stance, firmly being planted in the truth. But it is the reality of understanding the truth and knowing the truth and not being deceived by those who would pervert the grace of God, those who would pervert the faith, those who would pervert the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who would pervert the, the, the truth of the apostles' teaching of which Christ is the chief cornerstone. So it is imperative, again, that we have an understanding and that we grow and we learn the truth of God's Word and God's Word alone so that we not be deceived. That we, not, that we would recognize the blemishes, the spots. That we, would, that we would understand the dangers of those who would begin to pervert the truth of God's Word and lead astray the simple ones. Or the ones who are not rooted and grounded. These spots, and he goes on. There's five of these he provides, but that's only the first, of course. Empty clouds. Notice, notice the progression here of this. Spots, blemishes, right? Empty clouds. They oh, they, they look like they're promising. Oh, it looks like there's so much there and there's nothing present. Unfruitful trees. Oh, they're the trees that, that pass the time of, of bloom and fruitfulness and then guess what? They just wither out and die out, not producing anything of any benefit or good. Wild waves crashing in, causing destruction. And drifting stars, if you will, such as planets that have no orbit, if you will. <laughs> they're just flung out there, have no orbit, have no sense of direction, have no, no, no purpose. And so the reality is that there is, there's all this example that is given by Jude to point out the, the emptiness, uselessness, and, and chaos of the wicked men referenced in verse 4 who would just pervert God's grace. Just go their own way teach their own thing, try to gain followers. What a shame. What a tragedy it is. Listen, within the church today, there are people that are much more concerned about how many followers they get, how many people, how much support they get, rather than pointing men to the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's, here's, and that is sad for, on so many, for so many reasons. First of all, um, anyone you follow other than Jesus will fail and disappoint. First and foremost. Second, of course, second is that whoever you follow, that person's going to die, <laughs> right? Whoever you, and, and when you build your trust and your belief system, your faith, so to speak, I'm using that very loosely, upon a man, a denomination, a church, a church body, a congregation, then you will be disappointed. I will say, I think it's, I believe if you want the absolute, sincere, honest, blunt, forthright answer as to why there has been such a departure within the church over the last decades. Well, there's, there's several things that could be stated, but I believe at the, at the forefront of it all is that men are attempting to build their own kingdoms 
and not proclaiming the kingdom of Christ. And the kingdoms of men, listen, Scripture clearly teaches that all kingdoms will fall and crumble, except for one, which is the kingdom of Christ. So may we be aware, may we be rooted and grounded, settled in the truth. It may be that we're not tossed about. There's a great danger of that, by the way. Listen, there's, there's a new teaching that comes along, and people are always looking for something new. They are always want something dynamic, something that just moves them and to the core, and something new and something shiny to look at, and something that catches their attention. But listen, if you ever see, look, think about Philippians for a moment, I'm finished. If you ever truly see Jesus, everything else is inferior to him. Everything else pales in comparison. And the reason people are always searching and looking for something new is because they've really not catch a, caught a glimpse yet of truly who Christ is. Because when you see him for who he is, he, he consumes you completely. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank